You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning. We didn't create a new game for this sermon series, so sorry to disappoint you, but good to see you this morning. If it's your first time, welcome. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. If it's your first time, thank you so much for being with us. Just grateful you'd come and worship with us today. Uh, just a reminder, right after second service, we have our annual church picnic over at Chabot Park, not the Castro Valley side, the San Leandro side. Go down Estadio, turn left to stay on Estadio, go down, and the park is down there. Love to see you there. There should be more information in the bulletin after second service. Go down there. We'll have uh, burgers and dogs. I think it tells you what to bring in there, but it'll be a, a great time. So encourage you to come out for that. Excited this morning to start a new series on the book of Deuteronomy. So let's pray and let's ask God to be our instructor as we begin. God, I pray now that we would be able by your spirit to quiet our hearts Lord, there are so many things clamoring for our attention in our heads, so many demands, needs of the week. I pray that you would silence those now and make us attentive to the one thing we most need to hear, and that's your voice. Thank you that you are living and active, Jesus, that you speak and teach us through your word. I pray we would take it to heart, and as Deuteronomy says, take care and listen that we would live. Teach us now what we need to keep in mind for every day, and uh, ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. So a few months ago, I was playing with our son Omari, and he ran behind his crib and began stepping on the heater vent back there. And that bothered me. And you might ask, Jeff, why did it bother you? I don't know. It just did. And in response, I made a mistake. I created a new rule. Don't step on the heater vent. And so I looked at him and I said, Omari, don't step on that. And he looked up at me. And he got this big grin. And he started stomping on the heater vent like that. So I picked him up, took him out of the room. And you might think that was the end of it, but oh, you are so wrong because now every time he sees a heater vent, every time, he runs over to it and starts stepping on it and he says, tappa, 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 tappa. He even looks back at me, tappa, 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 tappa. It's even crazier than that. We'll be on the street walking, and he'll see something that looks like a vent, a sewer cover, a grate, a drain, run out, tap, tap, tap. Now, now what is that? What is that? In a nutshell, that is our problem. God says something. And we say no because it seems arbitrary or needless or overly restrictive, and we just don't want to do it. Now, in that case, it was kind of arbitrary, and it backfired. 
But, but how do we deal with this dynamic in our relationship as Christians with God? Because he'll tell us to do things and we don't want to do them. Here's the dilemma for us as Christians. We walk by faith, not by sight. We lean on Jesus' understanding, not our own understanding. And, and here's the question. How do you know if you actually trust Jesus and not yourself? According to the Bible, the answer is pretty simple. You obey him. Amen. Obedience. That's how you know. How do you know if you trust him, you do what he says? According to the Bible, there's no such thing as disobedient faith. Faith obeys. Conversely, there is no genuine obedience apart from faith. Because willing obedience, obedience from the heart, is rooted in a response of trust to who God is and what he says. That's why in the book of Romans, Paul calls it the obedience of faith. There is no faith apart from obedience, and there is no genuine obedience apart from faith. Here's the root problem. We hear God's commands, and we think that is burdensome, arbitrary, needless, no. And we disobey because we don't trust that his way is the best way. And ultimately, we don't trust that his way is the best way because we don't trust him. We don't trust his character. This is the dilemma every day because the Christian life is a life of obedience. That's what God wants for you, to obey him. That's what Jesus wants for you, to obey him. What does he say at the very end of his life? Teaching them to observe, to obey everything I have commanded. That's Jesus' goal for your life, to obey everything he has commanded. And in the moment, obedience will often seem like the path to avoid. So what do we need to remember about God? What do we need to constantly keep in mind in order to obey? In a nutshell, that's what Deuteronomy is. Listen to God and live. Here's why. So today we begin this 11-week series, really a thematic series, on the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a very important book in Scripture. They're all important, they're all God-given, but in terms of the narrative of Scripture, Deuteronomy is a critical point in the story. Deuteronomy is God's vision for godliness in the Old Testament. And it's a vision that's echoed throughout the wisdom literature and then the prophets. So if you want to know what Old Testament godliness looks like, you go to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the heartbeat of the Old Testament. It's also this hinge point in the Old Testament. It starts at this critical juncture in Israel's history. God has established his people. He's taken them out of Egypt, and he's going to bring them into the promised land. And now Israel stands on the shores of the Jordan in the plains of Moab, looking to enter this land that God had promised. And God is about to lay out the vision that will characterize Israel's life as a nation. And Deuteronomy looks back to everything God did. It sets forth a vision for what God wants, and it looks forward to Israel's inevitable failures and God's promised restoration. So in a sense, if you understand Deuteronomy, you really understand the entire Old Testament. It's a critical book. It's also a complicated book because it's a few different things at once. What is Deuteronomy? Well, in one sense, it's a constitution. It's a constitution for the nation of Israel. This is God's blueprint for how they're going to live. 
But, but it's more than that. It's also a chance for God's people to start again. Deuteronomy is a chance for God's people to renew their covenant. Remember the story. Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They cry out to God. God delivers them. He raises up Moses. Moses leads them out of slavery across the sea, Red Sea. He leads them to Sinai. And at the Mount of Sinai, God establishes a covenant with his people. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And the people say, yes. And then immediately after that, they say, no. They go back on their covenant. They disobey God. And that's the wilderness generation, faithless disobedient, not trusting God, turning from God again and again. And even as God promises to lead them into the promised land, Israel says no again and again. And eventually an entire generation of Israelites who heard the law at Sinai, they disqualify themselves from entering the land. Why? Because they didn't believe. They didn't trust. They didn't want to follow God. And the only members of that generation who were able to go in are Joshua and Caleb. So you have this wilderness generation that's almost entirely faithless. They fail, but God's covenant doesn't fail. God's mercy is new for each generation, so God takes this next generation, the children of the wilderness generation, and says, now I'm going to send you into the land with Joshua and Caleb, and now they have a chance to get it right. Your parents failed. Now you get a do-over and can go in the land, listen, and live. And this book has the feel of an ancient treaty that a king would make with his subjects. And every treaty had a preamble and then historical background, terms of the covenant, then blessings of the covenant, curses of the covenant, witnesses to, to ratify the covenant. Deuteronomy has all of those features. But, but Deuteronomy is much more than a legal document, it's much more intimate than that. It's really a book of the heart. This isn't just about legal obedience. It's about a heartfelt covenant commitment obedience. And at the core, you know what I think Deuteronomy is? It's actually a sermon. It's a plea from Moses to God's people to obey him from the heart. I love Deuteronomy because it's not just the Bible, it's a sermon in the Bible about the Bible. It's just one big expositional sermon on the law. That's what Deuteronomy is. Look at verse 5. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to what? Explain this law. What, what law is that? Well, it's the Ten Commandments. It's the law that God had given Israel at Sinai. So this is the law that Moses is preaching to the people. But notice, he doesn't just regurgitate the law. He doesn't just say, remember, this is what it is. No, he explains the law. In other words, he is interpreting the law for a new generation that's going to face new challenges and new circumstances, and he's going to apply the law of God to a new situation that Israel is about to enter. That's why some of Deuteronomy is new. Some of it sounds like the law in Exodus and Leviticus, but some of the stipulations are new. These are new guidelines, and they're consistent with what came before, but they're fleshing out the significance for these new circumstances. In fact, if you look closely at the specific laws in chapters 12 through 26, you see that almost every one of them is just an expansion on the Ten Commandments. 
God's taking, Moses is taking each of these laws and saying, okay, in this new pluralistic place, Canaan, with all of this false worship, here's what it's going to look like for you to live out the Ten Commandments that God gave you. That's why Deuteronomy is called a, a second law. That's what Deuteronomy means, second law. It's not that Moses is giving a second law. He's giving the first law a second time. He's giving the initial law to a new generation and applying it to new circumstances. That's so important for us to grasp because here's what we see in Deuteronomy. Circumstances change. Culture changes. But the principles and standards of God's law don't change. And they don't change because God doesn't change. And his character doesn't change. And so the principles of the law abide. And that is so important for us as we start reading the Old Testament. Because I think anytime we read Old Testament law as New Covenant believers, there's this little instinct. Here's the temptation, right? We say, oh, that's Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, things were weird. And then Jesus came and he made things normal. And that's how things are now, praise the Lord, and we don't have to worry about the weird stuff. Here's the problem with that. Culture changes, context changes, our place in redemptive history changes. Jesus fulfills the law, but who doesn't change? God. And so the underlying principles or standards of God's law don't change. They're just applied to a new time. Think about what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. And fulfill it means I am pointing you to the ideals that the Old Testament law was always pointing toward. And so when Jesus explains the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, hey guys, you know, murder and adultery and lying, don't worry about that stuff anymore. That's fine. You can do all of that. No. No, what does he say? He says, here is the heart of those commandments and what heart obedience is going to look like. Now, what does that mean for us as we study Deuteronomy? It means we can't just get caught up on the particulars, the context. We have to look at the principles underneath the law because the principles abide even today and shape our life as God's people together. Does that make sense? So, so that's the sermon Moses is giving. He's applying the law, but it's not just some academic exercise for him. Like I said, Moses isn't just a teacher. He's a preacher. This is preaching. That's what Deuteronomy is. And you get a sense of Moses' urgency throughout this book. Again and again, he says, today. Listen, today. Today, if you hear his voice. Today, I set before you life. And death, make a choice what you're going to do today. Why is Moses so urgent? You know why? He's about to die. This is it for Moses. He knows that he's disqualified from entering the promised land, both because of his sin and the sin of the people he led. He can't take them in. He has to pass his leadership to Joshua. This is his last chance to pass on the faith. This is it. From one generation to the next, here is the link to this next generation, and you get this sense that Moses doesn't want this generation to make the mistakes that their parents did. And that's why again and again, do you know what Moses says? Don't forget. Don't forget 
the covenant God made with you and don't forget your God. Two times he says it in chapter four where he really introduces the theme. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, your heart, guard it lest you what? Forget the things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And then because he's a good preacher, he keeps making the same point again and again. Verse 23, he says, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Nine times in this sermon, Moses says, don't forget. Don't forget positively. He says, remember 14 times. Remember, remember, remember God. Remember the law he gave and why he gave it. You know what I think Moses is saying in essence? Don't do what we did. <laughs> don't make the mistakes we did. Have you ever had that lecture from someone, don't make the mistake I made? That's like the most sincere lecture of all, isn't it? <laughs> Please learn from my mistake. That's what Moses is saying. Don't forget. Don't forget, Creekside. That's the great danger for us is that in the hustle of life with all of these demands and distractions and temptations, we forget what God has called us to. We forget obedience because fundamentally we forget who God is and what he has done. Paul Tripp says that all of us are gospel amnesiacs. We all suffer every day from gospel amnesia. You know what that means? Every day we forget who God is. We forget what he has done to deliver us from sin. We forget who we are in Christ and the freedom we have from sin. And then we forget what we're supposed to do to walk in newness of life. That is just the bent of the human heart is to forget that. And so our greatest task every day is what? To remember. Call it to mind. Bury it in your heart. To live out of this new covenant God has given us. And that's why Deuteronomy speaks to us. And so today, we're gonna look at how Moses introduces the topic, the theme of Deuteronomy. We're gonna introduce the theme as well for our sermon series. And we're just gonna look at why we obey. What do we need to remember to obey? Three things here. First, the plea, don't forget. What do we need to remember to obey? Why would we obey in the first place? That's the first thing Moses says, but then he says something very interesting. Second, he says, oh, by the way, you're gonna forget. <laughs> you will. So in spite of everything we're supposed to remember, Moses says, inevitably, you're gonna forget. You're gonna fail. And we're gonna look at why we fail, why we forget. But third, here's the good news. You know who never forgets? God. He always remembers his covenant, which means the chance for renewal is always there not just from generation, but from day to day. And when you understand this dynamic between our failures and God's faithfulness, the more deeply you understand it, the more you call God to mind. Does that make sense? So real quick, very complicated book. I'm just giving you snapshots here, okay? But, but three points here. First, don't forget. Don't forget it's important that we see it's not just that Moses wants us to remember what to do. He wants us to remember why we should do it in the first place. Why obey God? 
Why follow through with this? Three reasons he gives here at the very beginning. Three things we need to remember all the time to motivate obedience. The first reason we obey God, according to Deuteronomy, is this, because his ways are good. Look at how the sermon starts. And now, sermon starts, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may what? Live. This is a matter of life or death and not just live in the sense of survive, but live in the sense of thrive. Do you want to succeed? Do you want to prosper? Do you want to experience the abundant life God has for you? Obey him. There is nothing arbitrary or restrictive about the rules that the creator gives to his people. They are life. Seven times, Moses says, do it that it may go well with you. Six times, do it that you may live long in the land. That, that you may prosper in all you do. You got, got both sides of Spock, right? Live long and prosper. It's all there, right? You boomers, I have to give you, an, you know, a reference every now and then, okay? Gonna, yeah. in, in, in fact, Moses, in laying out the blessings of the covenant, says the Lord will make you abound in prosperity if you do this. Now, now listen, this isn't the health and wealth gospel of the Old Testament because prosperity means flourishing in every relationship. That's what it means. And it means flourishing when times are good and flourishing when times are hard. That's the kind of prosperity that God promises you. Think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night, he or she shall be like what? A tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season. What does that mean? If you obey God, you are a tree rooted in the ground and you have sustenance, which means you can go through good seasons, you can go through bad seasons, but guess what you are in every season? Fruitful abounding in the work of the Lord, joy, peace, patience, understanding, right relationships with others. All of that is yours if you'll obey. It's better than earthly prosperity because it's a prospering that you get in good times and bad times. That's what God is setting forth in his word. God is not out to make your life miserable. He's not. Obedience isn't because God just arbitrarily needs to see you suffer a lot. God wants life for you. It's counterintuitive. It might not make sense to you in the moment. It might be costly at the moment, but the end is always good, and you have to believe that. You have to believe that. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says you have to believe that. Without faith, it's impossible to believe God, for the one who comes to God must believe that he is what? A rewarder of those who seek him. If you don't believe that God will reward you for seeking him, guess what you won't do? Seek him. You won't. You won't trust God. So you have to believe that, that God is good. And as Psalm 84 says, no good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. Any good thing, truly good and lasting thing, God is not holding out on me. He will give them all to me in his time. He will give me what I need if I obey him. 
Why does God give us such a good law? Because he loves us. And he delights in prospering us, Deuteronomy 30 says. He wants us to flourish in our relationship with him. And that gets to the second thing we remember. We trust that his ways are good because we see how good he has been to us. It's very important to see. Deuteronomy isn't some legalistic code for how to get right with God. This is a gospel book. Do you know why? Because it's all based on what God has already done to save Israel. This isn't obey to get a relationship with God. It's God has already saved you. He's already delivered you. You have a relationship with God. Now live out of faith in him. That's Deuteronomy. That's the second motivation. We obey because God has been good to us. Look at how the sermon ends. Because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you. I don't know that last part. Hold on, I lost my place. To bring you in, to give you a land for an inheritance. Go to the next slide. As it is this day, know therefore and lay it to heart. There's the heart issue again, that the Lord God is heaven and earth above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his commandments, his statutes and commandments. You know the rule with therefores in the Bible, right? Whenever you see a therefore, you ask, What's it there for? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> What's it there for? It's helpful. Why is that therefore there? What is Moses saying? In light of the fact that God has graciously chosen you, you had nothing to do with that. He has graciously delivered you out of Egypt. He did that. Has graciously protected you from all of these nations that wanted to destroy you as you get to the promised land. That was him. In light of all that obey. Why do we obey? Because God has been good to us. In fact, that is the ultimate motivation always to obey is I treat you the way God has treated me. God never asks us to treat someone else the way he hasn't already treated us. I call that the gospel check in my life all the time, right? that, That will check you in every situation, I can't believe my wife is so disrespectful and I can't believe the, you know, and it's like the Spirit's just saying, well, hmm, who's been disrespectful to someone and uh, disregarded them and then maybe I've been patient with you and merciful with you and it's like, got me, right? I can't believe my boss is so unreasonable and he's asking me to do this and I don't want to do what he says and God's like, I know someone who doesn't want to do what someone says. I can give you some examples, right? And and that is the check on our behavior all the time. Is whenever we don't want to obey, God is saying to us through his spirit and his word, well, how have I treated you? How have I treated you? And that's a tough one to argue with, isn't it? In fact, that's the only one you really can't argue with is that. And that's the gospel motivation to obey. Okay, God, if you've treated me that way, then I can treat others the way you call me to treat them. So, God's ways are good. God has been good. That's motivation. And three, your obedience, Moses says, will be good not just for you, but for everyone. Everyone. Here's the the social vision of Deuteronomy. He, He calls his people, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of who? The peoples, the nations. 
who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what people? A great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, Israel's mission was to be a light to the nations. And being a light to the nations didn't necessarily mean we're going to go out and evangelize everyone. Fundamentally, it meant just obey me. Just live as a society the way I tell you to. And my way is so much qualitatively better than the surrounding nations that they will take notice. I love what he says. The nations will say, this is a great nation. Was Israel a great nation? (laughs) They're tiny. They're insignificant. On the world stage, they're a nobody. And yet God is saying, your greatness won't be your military power. Your your greatness won't be your cultural influence, right? You're just kind of pervasively influencing the rest of the world. It will be, no, you will be so righteous in your behavior if you obey me. There will be such a salt and light to what you do that, that the surrounding peoples will say, surely God has to be among them. Which, by the way, is exactly what the New Testament says, that the world will know the veracity of the gospel and that God sent Jesus, how? By our love for one another. Ultimately, our missionary strategy isn't just go and tell people about Jesus. We need to do that. But it's as we love each other, people see the gospel enacted. And according to Jesus in John 13 and 17, they they just have an intuitive sense. This is real. God is among these people and their message is genuine. Conversely, if you don't obey uh, as a community, it's really hard to evangelize because then the church is just a dysfunctional family And most people are like, I've already got a dysfunctional family. I don't need another one, right? So these are the motivations, right? It will go well for you. You will prosper. I have been so good to you. It will be good for the world if you do this. So why do we forget? (laughs) I mean, those are good motivations, aren't they? And yet I still sin. I'm guessing you do too. Why do we forget? Well, well, Moses tells us at the end of the chapter. He says, If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Now, Moses issues this warning. He says, if you disobey and don't call to mind, you will be cursed. You will forfeit the blessings of the covenant. And in fact, this sin of idolatry will undo the blessings you could have experienced. Remember when God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I will give you a land and I will bless you. I will make you fruitful, multiply many in number. And now what happens when they turn from God, they're scattered off the land and they're few in number. So it's an undoing of what God had initially promised. This is the warning Moses gives. But if you look at this chapter and the rest of Deuteronomy, here's what becomes very clear. It's not just a warning, it's going to happen. 
In fact, it's an ominous thing in Deuteronomy that eventually Israel is gonna screw this up and that the generations won't learn the lesson. And that's the history of the Old Testament, isn't it? Is generation after generation failing to learn the lesson of trusting and obeying God and that generation forfeiting the blessing they could have gotten the blessing of God using them to be a light to the nations. And ultimately, they have to be scattered into exile. That's the warning here. And so why was it so hard for Israel to remember? Why did they fail again and again and again? I think we get a hint of it here in the passage. God says this in verse 12, then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form, there was only a voice. Here's what's so interesting about the Old Testament. Every other nation had gods that would reveal themselves physically, right? Idols, a picture of what the God was like. And the one thing God didn't do was give his people what? An idol. The only way God revealed was what? Speaking. There is no visual revelation. Yes, there's a fire, there's the smoke, there's the mountain, but that wasn't the revelation of God. That was the, that was the, the, the sign that God was coming. The revelation of God was speaking out of the fire. It was his voice. And so the thing the Israelites were to cling to wasn't ultimately what their eyes had seen. It was what? Their ears had heard. It was remember what I've said to you. Remember what has been taught to you. That's why they weren't to make a form. He goes on to say, therefore watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no, what? Form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. God says, I didn't give you a form to copy. I gave you words to remember and yet that's very hard for Israel, isn't it? What's, like the, what's the first sin? They, they make an idol, <laughs> right? And Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law and it's like dad leaves and the kids just lose their minds, right? And they're scared of the big God on the hill. We don't like this God who's speaking to us. Moses, you got up there, we need to make an idol. And so they make the golden calf and Moses comes down. He's like, what is going on here, right? Like what, I leave for 20 minutes, not really, but like I come back, this is what's happening. Aaron, what's going on? He's like, I don't know, the people threw stuff and a calf came out and he's just like, it's not me, right? Like, like, Like how did that happen so fast? How did that happen so fast for the people of Israel? Here's what you've got to understand. I think sometimes we read about idolatry in the Old Testament and we just assume these people were kind of idiots. Like they were just superstitious, benighted people and they just, they wanted to worship statues. That's not what's going on. It's not like they wanted an action figure to worship instead of God, okay? Okay. No, what they wanted, what an idol represented was a physical representation of their ideal of what God should be like. The reason you make a physical representation of God is because you want a God you can what? Contain. You can control and a God that embodies the things you already want God to be. 
Because then that God will give you what you want. And ultimately you're God, you're in control and God is not God. That's the problem with a speaking God, right? He just tells you to do stuff, but he can't be contracted or constrained to your conceptualization of who he is. You have to just respond by what faith to what he says. And that's a problem, isn't it? Because we want a God we can control. And everyone wants a God they can control. That, that's why the gods of the, the, the idols, they were male and female. They had a gender. They had sexuality. Why? So they could be worshipped through sex. People wanted to worship sex and fertility. The gods would be embodiments of physical power or political power or financial success. Why? Because that's what people want. And they're just projecting their ideal of God into the sky so they can worship the sky God of their own imagination rather than the really uncomfortable God of reality, the speaking God. You know, that's our problem. It's the exact same problem is that we have a very hard time with a God who we can't constrain, who we can't limit, who we can't put boundaries on. As Tim Keller says, you, it's not even, you don't even have a God until the God can contradict you. <laughs> until the God can go against what you want. You don't have a God, you just have a projection of what you want. That's the problem with God. God does things in the Bible that we don't like that we don't agree with, that we don't understand. You know why? Because he's real. <laughs> he's not just a projection of what we want. And every day, you know what we're tempted to do? To put our trust in what we see, because seeing is believing, and not in what God says. It's much harder to be a hearing people than a seeing people. Because if you can see, it's instant gratification. That's what we're drawn to. We want to see because seeing is satisfying. You know, there's no book addiction among children in America right now. Oh my gosh, just can't get them out of literature, right? Just keep reading. No, what? Screens. They're addicted to visual stimuli. We want the same thing. We want visual stimuli all the time because seeing is believing. And that's why you can hear me preach this morning and go right out and forget all of it based on what you what? See. And that's our problem every day is that the lusts of the flesh see things in the world, we create idols and we go after those things and we forget what God has said. Does that make sense? That's why this is so hard and that's why it takes so much diligence to remember what God has said because it's the first thing we'll forget in the morning unless we keep it in our heart. God wants us to be a hearing people. He doesn't give us a form. And here's the thing, we, just kind of knew, Moses knew, you're going to fail. You will forget the covenant. You will be like your parents. You will walk away. Guess what? We will too. And, and this is the, the really convicting thing about the Christian life. The older you get, the, the sins get more painful because he's like, I know better at this point. <laughs> I know too much to keep committing that sin at this point. And so the failures, in a sense, get more painful. And so what do you do to renew the covenants? Well, Moses tells us at the end of the chapter, don't forget, but you're gonna forget. But guess what? God won't forget. Failure is not final. And there you will serve gods when you're in exile of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. You're gonna go into exile. You're gonna worship those gods. You're gonna say, huh, our gods weren't that great. They failed. And then from there, you will seek the Lord with your, your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. You will do it. Why? For the Lord your God is a merciful, compassionate God. That's what it means. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. We constantly fail to hold up our end of the bargain. God always holds up his end. And ultimately, he's the one sustaining the covenants, not us. And, and he will only let his people go so far into ruin before he brings them back to himself, before he renews the relationship. And that's what all of the prophets say. Think about Hosea, where God's people are pictured as an unfaithful wife and the wife runs and runs and runs and God says, I'm not gonna tolerate it and I'm not gonna divorce you. Not gonna do either. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna discipline you. I'm gonna purify you and then I'm gonna remarry you and do it all over again and renew the covenant over and over and over again because God is compassionate and compassion is what comes naturally to God. See, that's how God is unlike us. We are not by nature merciful. We'd say, this is toxic. End it. God says that compassion is my very heart. God is not like us because he doesn't give up. He is always inclined toward mercy. He's always inclined to renew the covenant. And so that's the good news. And here's the thing. When you realize this dynamic, failure in the Christian life actually fuels faithfulness. You know why? Because you read God's law and you go, oh man, I'm worse than I thought. That's why reading the Bible is uncomfortable, right? It's like, I kind of thought I was bad. Oof. No, I, I, I really have failed. I really have sinned. But now God's mercy is that much deeper because I see my sin that much more clearly. And then I experience his love and acceptance that much more tenderly. And then my heart is inclined to him even more. And the more you understand that dynamic, the more your sin actually becomes a means that God can use for your sanctification. Because every time you go, oh wait, no, I really do need the gospel that much. And God really is that gracious, so I really am that grateful, so I'm gonna listen and obey. Does that make sense? And that's how God builds this gospel memory into us. So we do what he says. God will not forget you. In fact, there's only one thing God forgets. Our sin. That's the one thing that he refuses to bring to mind when he looks at us and separates us as far as the east is from the west. And that's the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, he is inviting you into a covenant where he never forgets you and never remembers your sin. And so that when he looks at you, his heart is always inclined toward you because he died to take your sin. It's dealt with. He rose to give you life and so he will not quit on you. Even when you think you're quitting on him, guess what? He hasn't quit on you. And there is no other relationship like that. And that's who God is. That's why the gospel is such good news. Let's pray.
So thank you for this book, Lord. There is much more I could say, but I pray that you would help us call to mind what you have said. And and Lord, that as we leave this room, we would not forget. Lord, we are a forgetful people, but you are a faithful God. And so by your spirit, would you help us call to mind who you are, what you have done, who we are, and how we should live. Lord, that we might live in response to you all of our days. And Lord, be true to the covenant because you are forever true to us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you that ultimately it doesn't rest on us, but on you and your work. Help us to live in response to that every day. We pray it in your name. Amen.